Hey, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And here's our goal at Bergen Park. Uh, Our goal is to practice the way of Jesus. To practice the way of Jesus. See, the life that Jesus came to offer us, it begins with faith. It begins with repentance. It begins with belief. But if we're not willing to live the lifestyle of Jesus... We're probably not going to experience the fullness of the life that Jesus offers. Because, see, Jesus had a lifestyle. He had a way of living. And the life that Jesus promises us, the life of abundance, we hear that, the life of life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that, it requires us living the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, if we're going to live that lifestyle, it means three things. And this is our core values at Bergen Park. The first is to be with Jesus. The first is to be with Jesus. We want to learn what does it mean for us to be with God. And that requires practice, things like prayer, scripture, community, fasting, science, silence, solitude, scripture, memory, all of those things. We want to learn to be with Jesus. But second, we do that so that we might become like Jesus. Because see, what you are with, you become like. And if we are with God, we want to become like God. That's why Jesus came, is so that we might be like him. And then finally, we want to actually do what Jesus said we should do. And he said, all the things that I've done, I want you to go out and do those exact same things. And that's our goal at Bergen Park, is to be with him, to become like him. And then finally, to go out in the world and to do what Jesus did. Now, the message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We don't generally use the language of the kingdom, but the language of the kingdom means God's presence is now available. God is now with us, and all of us, the radical invitation is all of us can enter into his presence. It's available to the poor in spirit. It's available to the meek. It's, it's available to the, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's presence is now available, and we can enter into that presence. Now, because Jesus welcomed everyone into his presence, essentially, and he said, hey, all you people come to me, and because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and people who drank the wrong stuff and ate the wrong stuff, he was accused as one who was a sinner and a glutton. Because Jesus hung out with sinners, he was accused of being a sinner, and many people thought, hey, Jesus, is the Old Testament still in? Are we still doing that? And so he says, and we looked at this last week, that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. See, Jesus didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. That the Old Testament in some ways like a signpost pointing the way to a greater fulfillment. And what we're going to begin doing in Matthew chapter 5 is looking at six case studies. Six times Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said. Now, when you hear those words, you've heard it said, uh, where, where, where have we heard that? We heard that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we hear things like, do not murder. Today, we're actually going to look at that. Uh, we hear things like, do not commit adultery. Do not swear falsely against your neighbor. Do not covet. And so we see these things, and what's going to happen in Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus is going to show us what it looks like if heaven came down to earth and how we would live in evergreen as it is in heaven. What if the prayer that we're taught to pray actually came true? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And here's the key. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in evergreen as it is in heaven. What if heaven showed up in evergreen? Here's more importantly, what if heaven showed up in your heart? Jesus didn't come to get us to heaven. Jesus came to get heaven into us. And more importantly, the Christian life is allowing heaven to flow through us to flow through us into the rest of the world. What would it look like if heaven's rule and heaven's reign began to work in me and to work through me? I'll be honest with you, it would change my anger. (laughs) It would change how angry I get. It would change the stuff that I get angry at. Our culture today is gifted and talented at anger. Our leaders maximize anger to the greatest degree. When it comes to the news outlets, political outlets, anger is the rage because it's something that's addictive and it draws us back in. But what if heaven came down? Would I be as angry about the things that I'm angry about? And how would I respond if heaven's rule and reign began to really dwell in my heart? Because see, here's the idea. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to be in God's presence, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. See, these were the Old Testament experts. These were the ones that didn't mess up. They didn't say the wrong things, right? They were obedient externally. And Jesus says to be in God's kingdom, our righteousness, meaning our rightness, to God and our rightness to the world, loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbors ourselves, it's got it's to it's be greater than the guys who do this 24-7. The question is, how's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen this way. We have to understand the purpose of the law is not just to make us good boys and girls. The purpose of the law was, first of all, to show us we need a Savior so that Savior could come in and begin to change the motivations of the heart. What he's describing is the righteousness that goes beyond is it's not enough simply to have abstained from physically choking the life out of someone. That's not enough. What God is after is not just to abstain from murder, but to remove the murder and the anger and the bitterness and the rage within the heart. The righteousness that Jesus is after is a righteousness that goes deeper, and it's one that's born out of forgiveness from God. Because see, when God tells you he forgives you and you have this huge debt, there is this joy, freedom, that births a new heart, that moves us out, not simply just to gain heaven, but to allow heaven to work through us. So as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at what would it look like, what would humanity look like if heaven truly came to dwell in us, And if heaven began to work through us, what would it look like if that prayer in evergreen as it is in heaven became true? And today we're going to talk about it in terms of our anger. And I've got no problem with this, guys. I want you to know um, I don't struggle with anger at all. Uh, There's no bitterness in me. If you guys know my story, you know, um, actually it's totally false. But my story is that someone confronted me about 12 years ago and told me that you're incredibly bitter. And I proceeded to yell at them (laughs) and tell them how wrong they are. Because, see, what happens is, you know, it it gets down to us. Anger gets down to a kind of a subterraneous level in our heart, and we hide it in there, and we make excuses for ourselves. 
and we hold other people to standards we don't hold ourselves to. So as we jump into this, uh, we're gonna allow God to sift our hearts and to work within us. So let's jump in Matthew chapter five, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 21. Matthew chapter five, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, but whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard and you would be put into prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you call us to be salt and light. And salt moves into the dark places. Salt heals. Salt restores. Salt stops the decay in the world. And light reveals. And so, Father, would your light Would your salt come in us and begin to remove the decay, the brokenness that's in us? Sometimes because we're just broken and sinful, but because we live in a broken and sinful world. And sometimes we look at things and say, I guess that's okay. But when it's raining in our heart, it leads to brokenness. It leads to the destruction of relationships. It tears others down, even if it just comes out of our mouth with a fallen word, it leads to death. And so, Lord, would we not just wrestle with some busy work, what you want us to do, but would we, through this passage, have a vision for what it would look like if heaven truly reigned in our heart and your rule and your reign was over us and, Father, your authority and your power was working through us. How would it change the way we relate to others and, Father, the way we relate to the things that make us angry? Would you teach us in this time in Jesus' name? Amen. So you've heard it said. Now, where did we hear that? That's Exodus chapter 20. I think it's verse 13. You can check me on that. It's the sixth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Now, when I look at that, I go, hey, I'm doing all right. As I said, my hands have never been around the neck of another human being. I've never tried to take somebody else's life physically. Actually, it's never even been a temptation. And understand, that's not obedience, that's called agreement. See, when it comes to obeying God, we obey God when God tells us no, and we choose to submit to it. Obedience is the crossing of your will. I've never had to obey God when he said, do not murder. I've simply agreed with him. I've said, God, you're right, I don't want to do that. And then he takes us to a deeper place. And see, that's the challenge with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's just external. And I could look at that commandment and say, hey, I'm doing it right. 
It's all these bad people in the world that are doing it wrong. They're messing things up. They're making my life a mess. They're messing up my country. They're messing up my county, my community, all that stuff. I can look at them and say, you're the problem. But see, God, the evil that he wants to confront is not just in the world, it's in us. And until he confronts the evil in the world and, and in us and liberates from that, us from that, then heaven's not truly gonna dwell through us. And so he takes us to a greater place. On the one hand, do not murder, but then he goes on to say that anyone who insults his brother, anyone who says to his brother, you fool, or, or anyone who says, who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. See, what he's saying is he wants us to understand not just simply the, the background of the command, he wants us to understand what happens when God rules in the heart. He wants us to understand why God is so much against harming someone else. Because think of it this way. God was angry with us. I mean, Scripture tells us. God was angry with us in our brokenness, and he was angry with us because he loved us. If you truly love someone, you get, at least I do, I get angry when they're harmed. When someone harms my wife, I, I get angry because that anger is this, this love. It, it, it dwells up in me and says, I need to protect her. You know, if my kids fall into the wrong crowd, I'm probably going to get a little angry at times because I'm going to get worried about them. I'm going to want to protect them. Anger in and of itself is not wrong because, see, anger protects the things we love. The problem is I've got this broken love. I've got these broken affections, and I tend to love the wrong things. And even when I tend to love the right things, I defend them the wrong way. And see, righteous anger is righteous all the way down. It loves the right things, but then it expresses that love in the right ways. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes people will love the right things and defend the right things, but the way they defend them, the way they move out into the world is not to build up, but to tear down. And so he's taking us to a deeper level. What does it mean? What does God want when it comes to, to who we are? And what is this anger? Now, let's talk just for a minute about the, what this anger is. Because see, when anger comes over us, often it's spontaneous. I don't know that we can, we can help it. At times it comes over our minds, it comes over our emotions, and it comes over us because something we love is in jeopardy. Or maybe simply because your kingdom comes in contact with my kingdom and you start saying, I want to get my way, and I tell you, no, I want to get my way, and there's a clash of kingdoms. See, one of the reasons that we struggle with God's commands is because it means we first have to put to death our own personal kingdom. And all of us have that. I don't know if you realize it. That's why we have conflicts in the world. We have this kingdom, this influence, and my kingdom is the place where what I want and what I want to see happen, rules and reigns. And see, when you step into my kingdom and you tell me no, I'm liable to get angry because that anger is to defend something that I think is important. But what does it look like for us to surrender our kingdoms to God's kingdom? Well, think of it this way. When God moved out in the world, how did he move out towards you? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That we were in enmity with God, meaning there was conflict between us and God. Not because God had done anything, but because of what we had done. 
God moved out towards us, and instead of moving out towards us in a way to give us what we deserve, he gave us what we did not deserve. He gave us grace. And could it be in God's kingdom today, in evergreen as it is in heaven, that God wants us to move out in the world the same way that God moved towards us? What if in politics and in life and in anger and relationships, what God is asking us to do is to allow his kingdom to come, his will to be done, which means I've got to set aside my personal kingdom, what I think is right and wrong, and what I want, I've got to die to myself, and then I've got to move out in the world the same way God has moved out towards us. See, that's more than just behavior. That's a change of the heart. If I'm going to move out towards the world the same way God has moved out towards me, that's going to be a change of motivations. It's an examination of the heart. And so what is the anger that he's describing? You know, in the New Testament, there are different words for anger. Uh, in the Greek, there's actually two primary words. One of those words is this word thumos, from which we get the word thermal or thermostat. Thumos is the kind of anger that it just comes. Somebody cuts you off. You know, you're at Costco. You're loaded up with toilet paper. You got, you got your hand wipes, and then someone cuts in line, right? What in the world are you doing? That's thumos. It comes over you. It's this anger that just kind of sweeps in, and then 30 seconds later, two minutes later, you've completely forgotten about it. Now, that's toxic, but that's not what he's addressing. The anger that Jesus addresses is this word orge or orgidzo, and it's the kind of anger that we like to, we like to sit in for a while. It's the kind of anger that we boil in. Today, we might translate it as holding a grudge. It's the kind of anger that sometimes starts as bitterness or it starts as an offense and we become a victim. We feel victimized in the world. We start thinking negative thoughts about that person. Eventually, it starts to come out of our mouths and words and abuse and language. And if that stuff boils in us long enough, he's saying that's the ingredients for murder. Now, you may not have the boldness to take it to physical murder, but he's saying within you literally is the fire of hell, that in you is death. And he's saying that's the kind of anger that is especially toxic, and it's the word that he uses. Now, if you're an English major, he's using a, what is called a prepositional phrase, and he's saying this, whoever continues in anger or whoever is nursing a grudge, whoever is remaining angry, whoever is being obedient to their anger, you're liable to judgment. See, understand this is a choice. It's not just the anger that comes over us. Now that changes over time with maturity, but he's saying we're choosing to walk in something. And if we allow that anger to boil in us and continue to give birth, it's going to lead to death. And so he says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And then he goes on, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, some translations actually say, whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the day. Could you imagine being drawn in front of the Supreme Court for an insult? Somebody cuts in line at Costco and you say, hey, hey, you idiot. 
and that somebody comes up and says, nope, that's it. I'm gonna take you in front of the Supreme Court. Jesus is using language that's extreme. And more than likely, the people that are listening, they've probably laughed at this point. They said, really, an insult? If I simply speak an insult towards my brother, I am, I'm gonna be brought before the Supreme Court? That doesn't make sense. And then, just to make sure they've got the point, he goes on and takes it to a higher level. And he says in verse 23, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that seems, now people are, they're not laughing anymore. Because on the one hand, being brought before the courts is one thing, but he's taking us to a greater picture, a greater place. And he's saying, if you call someone a fool. Now the word fool in the Greek is this word moros, from which we get the word moron. If you call someone a moron, you're in danger of the fire of judgment. Now, the word moron in Greek means two things. It means, one, on the one hand, you're an imbecile. You're not very intelligent, but you're also immoral. It's, it's in some ways a description of someone's character. And I don't know if there's a, a big difference between insulting someone, calling them raka, which is a four-letter word in the Aramaic, in the Greek, or simply calling them a fool. I don't know if there's a big difference between the two. Some commentators say that there is, and others say that there isn't. But Jesus is getting down towards the intent of the heart, that when we say those things towards others, we're not moving towards them. Hear me on this. The way God has moved towards us, we're moving towards them with a spirit of judgment. And in our heart is literally the fire of hell. And we as the judge believe we have the right to pour out that fire on whoever we choose. Now listen, it's much better to call someone a fool than to kill them. You know what I mean. It's much better that we restrain ourselves, but Jesus is saying if we address the anger that comes out of our mouth as you fool, there will no longer be murder on earth. Today, domestic abuse is a huge problem. You're not simply going to stop domestic abuse by simply addressing the behavior. You've got to address the anger that moves out in the world, thinking I have the right to judge others and determine what they should get. Jesus says that, that's the fire of hell. Now this word hell, we're gonna talk about this in a, a couple of weeks. I know hell's not popular today. I don't know that there's ever been a day that hell has been popular, but this word hell in the Greek is the word Gehenna, and it was actually a literal place. Just giving a little background on the teaching of hell. Hell was actually a literal place. It's still a literal place today. You can go to hell. Excuse me. And actually, you can throw up that picture. This is hell today. Oh, I guess that's it. <laughs> what happened? Oh, it broke. It's on the back screen. I can see it. You can't. Uh, hell's improved quite a bit. But honestly, there's this valley called Ben-Hinnom. And Ben-Hinnom was a horrible place in Jewish history. It was a place where tons of terrible things had happened. On the one hand, children were sacrificed to foreign gods in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Uh, some of the kings of Israel slaughtered priests in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. It had this history of violence and um, uh, just, just evil. And in Jesus' day, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom was just south of Jerusalem, and it was considered um, a garbage pit. 
It was just south of Jerusalem and people would literally throw their trash over the walls. It would fall into this valley, the Valley of Gehenna, and that trash would be burned 24 hours a day. And so when Jesus uses this image of the Gehenna of fire, he's describing a physical place. And he's saying this is the kind of judgment that's in us, but in the future, if we don't address it, this is the kind of judgment that comes for us. Now why? Because we're not moving out into the world the way that God has moved towards us. We're not in a sense doing unto others as God has done unto us. That's the word that he describes. Now that's not to minimize it, it's just simply to explain it. And notice what happens when anger gets in us, where does it show up first? It tends to show up first in our words. Jesus had a theory about why that happened, and it's actually in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What's in our heart in a moment reveals what we worship. Now, just in a moment, of course, we worship God, but when I'm angry, what's coming out of my heart is what's most important to me. What I say is what's most important to me. It's what's fueling my heart. Here's what was most important to Jesus when he faced injustice, when he was mocked, when his best friends left him and he was all alone, On the cross, in a moment of deepest anguish and pain, he said, Father, throw hell at them. Forgive them. They know not what they do. That is how Jesus moved towards us. Why? Because in his heart was not the hell of fire. It was reconciliation and the love of God. He moved out towards the world. And what he gave us was what was in us. And see, again, God's goal is not just simply to get us to him. It's to get him in us. And he wants that then to work through us. You know, Jesus' little brother addressed this as well. His name was James. And James talked about it this way. In James chapter 3, verse 6, he says, The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell, that our heart often shows up on our lips. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10, and he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, hear these words, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. When you see someone, what do you see? Often what we see is what they've done to us. Jesus did not simply see what we had done to him. He saw us as those created in the image of God, even though we had disobeyed him, even though we were unjust to him, even though we mocked him. He moved out into the world loving us. Now, to love someone means to seek their best interest. Jesus moved out into the world to love us. And if that is the experience we have had that has drawn us to God, if that's how God's kingdom has shown up into our lives, all he's saying is let God's kingdom come. Let his will be done in your relationships as it is in heaven. You are moving out into your relationships, not in poverty, 
you're moving out in wealth. The problem is we don't realize how wealthy we are. Does that make sense to you? Often when someone injures us, we feel weak. We feel poor. We feel empty. And he's saying we need to turn the tables. We need to first gaze upon what God has done for us, how he's moved towards us, allowing that to change us, to know that he's forgiven us. He's released us. He has adopted us. He has cleansed us. He has blessed us, as Scripture says, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are rich in Christ. Why do we tend to focus so much on what others have done to us and so little on what God has given us? Church, that's the essence of sin. That's the essence of sin. Not simply what others have done to us, but the fact that we tend to ignore what God has given us and it doesn't overwhelm us. What overwhelms us is what others have done to us. Now, here's the problem. You live in a culture that's gonna constantly tell you that's what's most important. <laughs> what's most important is the injustice that's been done to you. You're a victim. I mean, that's certainly the language today in our culture. Most people who are probably under the age of 50 like me, they're very poor at resolving conflict. Now, why is that? Because our leaders don't do it. Our culture doesn't do it. Our culture swims in this pool of anger. It doesn't reconcile relationships. What he's describing is so countercultural, it's going to cause us every morning to have to get up and to be with Jesus so that in this world we might become like Jesus, so that we might move out into this world of anger and a lack of conflict resolution and have reconciliation in my heart rather than the fire of judgment. Do you see that? Why do we need to be with him? Because he's not like the culture. And he's not even like some of the best of our leaders among us. Because even in those leaders, we hear words that reveal their heart. We hear the brokenness. We hear the words, moron, insults. We hear it every single day. But see, the question is not, how can we be better than others? What would it look like if heaven came into my heart? How would it change the way I'm relating to others? And that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's getting heaven in us so that heaven might begin to work through us. Now, now quickly, I, I wanna show you two ways that we can begin to address this. He gives us two illustrations at the end of this passage that help us to understand how we break this vicious cycle of victimiz victimization and anger and contempt. And the first situation is described in verse 23. And he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar. Go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and alter your gift. Now, uh, offer your gift. Understand the altar is not this stage. There was only one altar in Jesus' day. And at the time that he's speaking these words, he's, I don't know, let's say 50 to 80 miles away from the altar. He's in the northern side of Galilee. Now, he's describing a place that's in Jerusalem. It was called the inner court. And in the inner court was this altar. And that's where you brought your sacrifice. That's where you brought your gift. And to get there, realize there wasn't Uber, Lyft wasn't invented yet. You had to walk. And maybe you're walking with a goat. You're walking with some birds some pigeons. You may buy them there. You're walking with a grain offering. You're going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You finally get there. And now you've got to wait in line, right? So it's not like you just get in, you take a ticket, and you get up there. No, you're waiting in line. You're watching everyone else go through this process. You've gone through a process of 
of ritually cleansing yourself, confessing, and finally you're before the priest and you're ready to give this gift that you just walked 80 miles to get to and you've spent days and days preparing for this moment and not simply that you remember that you've done something wrong to someone else, but notice the language. If your brother has something, thank you, Jesus, for being so vague that you would allow the Holy Spirit to actually convict me. He doesn't tell us what the something is. You know why? That's allow the Spirit to work in our lives because if I knew exactly what it was, I probably wouldn't feel convicted because I'd say, well, I've never done that. But he's leaving it intentionally vague and he's saying, here's what you should do. You've spent all that time, weeks and weeks, you've spent a lot of money to get to that moment. You've got the gift, everything's ready. The priest is like, okay, Jason. And you say, hold on, hold my goat. I'm walking 80 miles back. I knock on my neighbor's door, bro, I think we gotta talk, I don't know. I think there's something, what is that? I don't know. There's something the Spirit is telling me, I need to reconcile with you, I need to address it. And then once you do that, walk another 80 miles back. Hey priest, you still got my goat? Nope, it's gone. Because see, by that point, I mean, he's, he's not gonna hold on to that thing for you. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's kinda like, imagine you're walking to the airport that's crazy in and of itself. But you walk to the airport, you get to the gate, you go through all the TSA and all that stuff. You're right there, you're about to give your ticket. And before you give the ticket to get on the flight, they, if you remember that your brother has something against you, you need to walk back to Evergreen. You need to address your brother. Now what's gonna happen? You're gonna miss your flight. Probably gonna be some fees you're gonna have to pay. It's gonna be some inconvenience. It's the same picture because see, that's how important reconciliation is to God. Now listen, it's not that important to me. I'm just being honest up here. And I don't know that it's that important to you because how often are we willing to sacrifice money and time just simply to make sure our brother is okay with us? Do you see the level? If, God, if heaven really showed up in your heart, what would it look like? To be honest, it probably would look like that. Because see, he's saying love moves out towards someone to their best, right? How did God move towards us? If I know my brother has hellfire in his heart towards me, I wanna, I wanna bring peace. I wanna bring reconciliation. See, the heart that God gives us is one of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Our message, our method is not ours. It's not about our kingdom. It's about representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the first illustration. Now, the second is just as extreme, and it's just like it. Watch this in verse 25. Here's the second story. He says, come quickly, uh, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you may be put into prison. I tell you the truth, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So this is someone to whom you owe a debt. So in a sense, when you hurt someone, when you sin against them, there's a debt. And so we can use this language. What he's describing is someone that owns a debt. Now, if you have a debt in the first century in Jesus' day and you couldn't pay it, they would do this ridiculous thing that throw you into prison until you could pay off your debt. Now, the problem with that is there are no jobs in prison. There's no way to make money in prison. So many people died in prison unless they had families that would actually pay off their debt. So he's saying, if you don't address it quickly, if you don't address the debt, it's gonna get worse. It's not gonna get better, Jason, by waiting. See, I like to wait. Because if I know somebody's angry with me, I figure, you know, they'll get over it, right? They're gonna, it wasn't that big a deal. I think, I think they're gonna realize, the Spirit of God will convict them and just give them. 
what do we do? We tend to wait. And nine times out of 10, it gets worse. Maybe one time out of 10, and I may be overinflating that, it gets better. He's saying you need to address it quickly because, see, when you sin against someone, there's a debt between you. There's a debt between you. Forgiveness is choosing not to hold that person accountable for the debt of emotional pain they've caused you. See, forgiveness is different than justice. Justice is addressing the behavior and saying, hey, that's wrong. Forgiveness is saying, I'm not gonna hold you liable for the emotional pain that you have caused me. I'm gonna pay it off because that's what God has done for us. Here's the point. In the kingdom of God, reconciliation matters. In the kingdom of God in relationships, we move out towards others, even if they disagree with us, even if they've caused us the problem, no matter what's going on for their best interest, we go out to reconcile. And it doesn't matter if they believe the same things. It doesn't matter if, if there are people or not. If the kingdom of God was to show up right now, all of those debts, all of those pains, they'd get addressed. And all he's saying is let's start doing it now. What would happen if each one of us today just went to somebody this week and said, hey, listen, I think there's something. I don't even know what it is but I, want, I just wanna make sure we're okay. You know, even if we just today started doing that in our relationships, people in this community might say, hey, I'm starting to see a little heaven come down. I'm starting to see behaviors that look very different from what I see on television, what I see from even our leaders. These are people that don't walk in anger to destroy others. No, rather they walk in the love and the grace of God to bring healing even to those who have caused them pain. Why? Because that's their God. Church, do you realize that's the God we worship? And if you know the God you worship and you know what he's done for you and you know you're a recipient and that heaven now dwells in you, all he's saying is I want you to rest in that and I want you to allow that heaven to work out into the rest of the world. See, that's what made Jesus so, in many ways, attractive is he moved out towards the broken. He moved out towards those who had injured them to build them up and not to tear them down. And he's inviting that same kingdom to work through us. The question is, will your kingdom, will your kingdom surrender? Will your need to be right? Can you set it aside? And if that's not where you are, would you just gaze upon what God's done for us? Just simply to look at what Jesus has done. And even if you don't believe that, to allow the intellectual idea to descend into your mind that while we're yet sinners, God moved out towards not to destroy us, but to give us grace and to give us life. That's the message of hope. And it's the message that leads to life and hope for the rest of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for, um, Lord, I, I thank you for causing me, as I read this passage, to examine not my behavior, but Father, what I love. And I'm just confessing, Lord, that I love me, me. I love to see myself as a victim I love to see others as so much worse than they really are and me so much better than I really am. I like to caricature the people around me. And I like to even say, you know, she's just a liar. That's all she is. She lied once. And yet I now see her just as a liar. And Father, I thank you. You didn't see us just according to our behavior. You knew we were created in the image of God. You saw innate beauty and value in us. And you moved 
towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We love, Father, because you first loved us and laid down your life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, may I pray for those in this room that they need to let some things down. Um, but before they do that, Father, they need to look into your grace, look into your love, look at the way that you've moved towards them and would that begin to break them? With the debt that we owe you, Father, would that begin to shape our heart into a new place of wealth rather than poverty so that we can bring that wealth out into the world. Guide us into these things and help us, Father, with each other. We're gonna hurt each other, step on each other's toes, shake the wrong hands the wrong way, but may we always, Father, remember that as we're walking in this life, we're, we're walking in grace. Help us to give that same grace to each other in Jesus' name.